Hello, happy Thanksgiving, and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, November 23rd, 2023. The only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. Israel and Hamas reach a breakthrough hostage and temporary ceasefire deal. A suspicious car explosion strikes the U.S.-Canada border at Niagara Falls. The Kremlin suggests colossal Ukrainian losses in Russian-occupied territory. Sam Altman reunites with OpenAI after a tumultuous week. House Speaker Mike Johnson endorses Donald Trump and meets him at Mar-a-Lago. Niger's junta asks West Africa's regional court to order the lifting of coup sanctions. South Africa's lawmakers vote to suspend ties with Israel. A report suggests that China is closing mosques in its northern regions. A Georgia judge won't revoke the bond of a Trump co-defendant for social media posts. And scientists sound the alarm about super pigs entering U.S. ecosystems. Israel and Hamas confirm a temporary ceasefire in a breakthrough hostage deal. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Jerusalem Post, Haaretz, and The Guardian. After the Israeli war cabinet voted in favor of a Qatari-mediated hostage deal with Hamas early on Wednesday, a four-day ceasefire is expected to be implemented Thursday. The deal reportedly includes the exchange of 50 Israeli and dual national hostages, women and children, held in Gaza for 150 women and children prisoners in Israeli jails as well as a substantial increase of humanitarian aid into the besieged Strip. A reportedly larger number of humanitarian convoys and relief aid, including fuel designated for humanitarian needs, will enter the Strip when the ceasefire takes effect, with Qatar's official statement saying that the country is committed to ongoing diplomatic efforts to de-escalate tensions, stop the bloodshed, and protect civilians. It added that the deal is subject to extension. Israeli's statement said that it was obligated to return home all of the hostages, adding that one additional day of pause would be added for every 10 hostages released. Hamas, in its statement, said that Israel would allow those still fleeing north Gaza free movement and pause arrests anywhere in the Strip. It also said that Israel would stop air traffic in the south for four days and in the north for six hours a day. Though the ceasefire has been agreed upon, it's yet to be implemented and fighting is still ongoing in the Strip. The Israeli military said on Wednesday that it entered Gaza City's Tel Alhawa neighborhood, capturing a Hamas outpost in the offices of its intelligence division, adding that Israeli forces killed several Hamas fighters and found a drone manufacturing workshop, mortars, and other weapons. Israeli forces also called for the Indonesian hospital and Kamal Adwan hospital in Bet Lahia to be evacuated, saying that militants were operating there while Gaza health officials said the hospitals were besieged. Wafa, a Palestinian news agency, said that 81 people were killed on Wednesday in the center of the Strip, with another 60 believed to be dead from Israeli bombing in and around the Jabilia refugee camp in the north. On Monday, Gaza's health ministry said that over 14,000 people in the Gaza Strip have reportedly been killed, over two-thirds of which were women and children. The ministry also reported 33,000 wounded. The official Israeli death toll, meanwhile, stands at 1,200 people. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on our first story and for the update on the situation in the Gaza Strip. We're going to start our first round of spins with a pro-Israeli narrative from the Jerusalem Post. 
While freeing hostages is of the utmost importance, Israel must not succumb to unfair international pressure. Hamas has a history of forcing uneven deals, and the Israeli War Cabinet made the right decision by weighing its options before accepting this temporary pause. It should remain clear, however, that Israel's ultimate goal is to eliminate Hamas from the Gaza Strip, and Tel Aviv will continue to work toward this end. We have a pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. Though the Israeli Defense Forces are making steady progress on the ground, a tactical assault on Hamas to free the captives could lead to the deaths of many more. Israel has made a wise choice to bring its citizens home immediately through this temporary ceasefire. This will also see much-needed aid reach Gaza, where an utter humanitarian cataclysm is unfolding. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They have an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 50% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by June of 2065. Two are dead in a car explosion at the U.S.-Canada border. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Reuters, News 4 Buffalo, Fox News, and Associated Press. A vehicle exploded at a border crossing between Canada and the U.S. on Wednesday after it reportedly crashed into the checkpoint structure at the Rainbow Bridge in Niagara Falls. Conflicting reports have emerged with some detailing that the car was traveling from Canada into the U.S., while others claim it was Canada-bound. Law enforcement confirmed that the two people inside the vehicle died, and the region has been closed off for investigations. All four border crossings between the U.S. and Canada in western New York were closed on Wednesday, including the Peace Bridge, Lewiston-Queenston Bridge, Whirlpool Bridge, and Rainbow Bridge. Federal and local authorities are investigating the situation, and Governor Kathy Hochul is heading to the area. One official patrol officer was reportedly injured from the explosion, and both sides have increased security measures. Canadian Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc says his government is, quote, in close contact with American authorities, as more details emerge. According to Fox News, which cited anonymous sources, Authorities initially suspected the explosion was an attempted terror attack. The FBI announced that its Buffalo Field Office is investigating the explosion while noting that the situation is very fluid. No official law enforcement agency has declared a cause for the explosion. However, according to two anonymous sources who spoke with Reuters, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency suspects the incident may have been caused by reckless driving. While Canada's CTV News reported its officials are, quote, operating under the assumption that it could be a terror attack. Thanks, Adam. We have a narrative A on this story from CNN. The FBI is investigating the explosion at the Niagara Falls border crossing, and the responsible party should wait for law enforcement to reveal its findings before jumping to conclusions. At this point, all we know is that a car crashed at the border checkpoint and exploded, causing the two passengers inside to die. The situation is fluid, and now is not the time to add further speculation. Man, the spins are going to continue with a narrative B by New York Post. While we shouldn't jump to conclusions, it's not unthinkable that the explosion at the U.S.-Canada border could have been an attempted terror attack. The world has become increasingly unsafe in recent months, and global tensions are boiling. Cars just don't explode, and sane people don't speed into border barriers. 
Regardless, border security and anti-terror measures are desperately needed to keep America safe. Adam, I saw the crash from the security footage. I mean, it just looks like something out of uh, Grand Theft Auto, just the car driving at full speed into the thing, into the border area, flipping up a ramp and and flying out of the frame. It was it's crazy. That's insane. I wonder if those Canadian border crossings are those are those are pretty tricky. As far as it being a terror attack, obviously, as Narrative A says, we shouldn't speculate. I'll do it anyway. I don't know how great a getting your car 30 feet over the border and exploding really does. And what kind of statement would a terrorist attack at the Niagara Falls border crossing make? A pro-barrel lobby. They're sending too many of them over the falls. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. That's, that's, that's it's just it not is. fair. <laughs> Coopers unite. They're throwing, they're ruining our barrels. Cooper, oh, wow. Hey, deep dive. Deep dive. Uh. <laughs> Next up, the Kremlin suggests colossal Ukrainian losses in Russian-occupied territory. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNBC, Sky News, Ukraine Forum, and The Guardian. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu claimed that Ukrainian Marines and special forces have suffered, quote, colossal losses after successfully crossing the east bank of the Dnipro River in the southern Kherson region. This comes as the U.K. Defense Ministry said both sides have been fighting in several villages, including Cranky, characterizing the fighting as confused, dismounted infantry combat and artillery exchanges in complex wooded terrain. Over the past day, Russia has also reportedly launched five missile strikes, 61 airstrikes, and more than 60 multiple launch rocket systems attacks in several regions, including Kharkiv, Luhansk, and Kherson, per Ukrainian media. Russian artillery reportedly impacted over 150 settlements in the Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Nipopetrovsk, and Kherson regions. It is unclear if Russia will be scaling back or preparing a third wave of assaults on the eastern Ukrainian city of Avdivka. Russian forces in recent weeks have tried to encircle the strategically important town and its chemical plant. European Council President Charles Michels is set to visit Kyiv to have a difficult discussion about Ukraine joining the EU. While Michel said he would give full support to get the bloc to decide on accession talks in December, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he believes the EU will be ready to do its part. While U.S. President Joe Biden's call for an additional $61 billion in aid to Ukraine has stalled in Congress, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said the Pentagon will send an additional $100 million in weapons from its existing stockpiles. Germany, too, will send another $1.4 billion in military aid. Meanwhile, Russia has denied accusations that it may receive ballistic missiles from Iran. This comes as Russian President Vladimir Putin attended the G20 summit virtually on Wednesday, during which he said his country is ready to negotiate and discuss how to end this tragedy. Some analysts, however, believe he won't engage in talks until after the 2024 U.S. election. Thank you, Scott. We're going to start our spins with a pro-Ukraine narrative provided by Kyiv Post. As the war has reached the two-year mark, Vladimir Putin has learned that his military cannot win a decisive military victory without completely depleting his arsenal and risking his domestic political power. If the West put its entire financial, technological, and military might up against Moscow, Putin would be finished and Ukraine safe. The future of the West is up to its leaders. 
and how much they want to defend its borders from future Russian aggression. Counter that with this pro-Russian narrative from RT. Ukraine is absolutely right when it says the only path to victory is complete Western involvement in the war. However, the powers that be decided to only offer help for as long as it takes, but not with whatever it takes. In the meantime, it stretched itself too thin in the Middle East as its so-called allies in Kyiv endured devastating loss after devastating loss. Europe and the U.S. do not want to go to war with Russia, so their best bet is now to concede and finally accept Moscow's offer to negotiate peace. And the nerds think that there's a 50% chance that the size of Ukraine's army will be at least 250,000 as a result of the ceasefire or treaty negotiations with Russia. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Sam Altman returns as OpenAI CEO with a new board. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Bloomberg Law, Reuters, ABC News, Wired, and CNBC. OpenAI announced on Tuesday that Sam Altman will return as the company's CEO less than one week after he was surprisingly ousted from the role. The company announced on X that Altman will rejoin OpenAI with a new initial board. The artificial intelligence industry was taken by storm when the ChatGPT maker fired Altman last Friday for not being, quote, consistently candid in his communications with the board. His departure led to most of OpenAI's 770 employees to sign a letter saying they would leave the company to join Microsoft, where Altman was slated to begin employment. On Monday, Microsoft, which is OpenAI's largest shareholder with a 49% stake, announced that Altman was joining the company to lead a new AI research team alongside his OpenAI co-founder Greg Brockman, who quit as president. Many other OpenAI colleagues were also on track to join them. OpenAI hired two interim CEOs, former Twitch CEO Emmett Shear and Chief Technology Officer Mira Murati, during Altman's four-day absence. Altman's agreement to return as CEO came in the condition that it reconfigure its board of directors. Brockman is set to rejoin OpenAI as president, and former Salesforce CEO Brett Taylor will chair the new initial board of directors, which will also include former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Adam D'Angelo is the only existing director who will remain on the new board. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella said Microsoft's leadership team supported OpenAI's board changes, and Altman said he will lead OpenAI with Nadella's support. Nadella added that he looks forward to working closely with Altman to grow OpenAI. Thanks for that update on this uh, rapidly developing story, Adam. We have a narrative A from Fortune magazine. OpenAI's now former board of directors acted egregiously and nearly lost a significant amount of the company's talent. Nearly all of OpenAI's 700 employees threatened to leave the dysfunctional AI company after the hostile coup against Sam Altman, and the power-hungry board of directors nearly destroyed the most promising company in the AI field. Luckily, Altman is back with a new board, and employee trust can be restored. However, this saga is an important lesson for many company boards. And the spin's going to keep on spinning with a narrative B provided by Vox. While its execution may have been flawed, 
OpenAI's former board of directors was acting in the world's best interests when it fired Sam Altman last week. AI is so young, yet its potential power is so profound, making open and clear communication necessary. While Altman may not have been acting nefariously, the board couldn't take the risk of allowing the AI leader to act cryptically. AI's prowess could fundamentally change our way of life, so it was reasonable for OpenAI's board to act accordingly, even if it was chaotic and ill-planned. Did you watch Succession, Adam? I Yes, I did very much so. This, this feels a little bit like that kind of stuff, right? I love the fact that uh, it very much like Succession that that he's he's getting fired, but and then they're like, okay, well, we'll hire you back. He's like, well, okay, well, I'm only going to come back if you fire the people that fired right. me. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, very, that's the deal. Yeah, that's like that's right, right out of the script of Nick. Well, if you uh, you know, what are you, if you shoot the king, don't miss. And if you you know, that was uh, that's the way it goes. Yep, that's it exactly. House Speaker Johnson meets with Trump after his endorsement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Daily Mail, ABC News, and The New York Times. Republican U.S. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson of Louisiana on Monday made his first visit as Speaker to the Mar-a-Lago estate to meet with former President Donald Trump. Johnson, who last week endorsed Trump's run for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, and Trump together attended an event held by Florida Representative Gus Milrakis. In endorsing Trump last week on CNBC, Johnson lauded the former president for his phenomenal first term and greatest economic numbers in the history of the world during Trump's first two years. Previously, Johnson was central in spreading Trump's false claims that President Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election was fraudulent, and Trump dubbed Johnson MAGA Mike after the latter won the speakership. Johnson's visit comes after he recently released the complete surveillance footage of the January 6, 2021 riots at the U.S. Capitol, and after he earlier this month faced internal GOP resistance to pass a short-term government funding bill to avert a government shutdown. Thank you, Scott. We're going to start with the Republican narrative provided by Newsmax. Trump is leading all his GOP rivals by a wide margin and has been extending his lead on Biden in the polls but Trump could benefit from signs of party unity. Johnson's move to endorse Trump is significant, especially since the former president did the same for him in the speaker competition. As the runner-ups for the GOP nominations seemingly are focusing on Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, Johnson's endorsement of Trump is a demonstration galvanizing unity around the former president. And we have a Democratic narrative from MSNBC. Any hope that Johnson would express independent will has been dashed. It didn't take long before he went to Mar-a-Lago to show his fealty to the authoritarian impulses of Donald Trump. If Trump returns to the White House, Johnson will clearly be under his full control, a stark warning sign for the American people. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to stop the spins with a nerd narrative stating that there's a 1% chance that Nikki Haley will be elected U.S. president in 2024. A Niger junta asked the court to order ECOWAS to lift its coup sanctions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Associated Press, ABC News, and Fatshimitre. Niger's military government has asked West Africa's regional court based in Abuja, Nigeria, to order the lifting of sanctions imposed on the state following its coup in July, which ousted elected President Mohamed Bazoum. 
Following the toppling of Bazoum's government, the Economic Community of West Africa States, or ECOWAS, alongside the U.S., has applied sanctions on the country. Over 70% of the country's electricity, supplied by Nigeria, has been cut off while assets in foreign banks and hundreds of millions of dollars in aid have been frozen. While Yonkali Yaye, a lawyer of Niger's junta, claimed that there was no sector of the Nigerian society that had been affected by sanctions. Francois Kenga Penon, ECOWAS's legal representative, argued that the military government isn't recognized by the bloc and thus cannot bring its case forward. Niger's junta has accused ECOWAS of applying harsher sanctions than previously witnessed during other coups in West Africa. Yaye further alleged that children couldn't return to school and drugstores couldn't remain open while the country lacked supplies. The ECOWAS Court of Justice will render a decision on December 7, while the court also continues to consider a separate legal request for the release of Bazoum and the return to constitutional order in Niger. Thanks, Adam Lamond brings us the establishment critical narrative. Given Niger's status as one of the poorest countries in the world, the application of economic sanctions upon the country following its recent military coup is questionable given the aim to restore law and order within the state. While this year's events in Niger must undoubtedly come with consequences, the current punishment is affecting the daily lives of its people and comes with the risk of manufacturing a humanitarian crisis. And we're going to counter that with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Al Jazeera. While seen for a period of time as a bastion of democratic unity in West Africa, ECOWAS has seen its power undermined in recent years by a plethora of military coups. Now is the time for ECOWAS to show that it will not tolerate any further state violations in the region. Unless the organization sticks to its guns, a dangerous precedent will be set in West Africa that may lead to the destruction of democracy and even ECOWAS itself. Lawmakers in South Africa vote to suspend their Israel ties and close their embassy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Middle East Monitor, Jurist, SABC News, Al Monitor, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. South Africa's parliament voted 248 to 91 on Tuesday to call for the closure of the Israeli embassy in Pretoria and the suspension of all diplomatic ties with Tel Aviv until a lasting ceasefire in the war in Gaza is reached, Amid mounting tensions in Israeli-South African relations, the motion passed a day after Israel recalled its ambassador to South Africa, Ilya Belitserkovsky, for consultations following the latest South African statements on Israel. South Africa, which hasn't had an ambassador to Israel since 2018, recalled its diplomats from Israel earlier this month. The non-binding resolution was tabled by the opposition Economic Freedom Fighters Party last Thursday with amendments from the ruling African National Congress. President Cyril Ramaphosa is now required to decide whether to implement the motion. Lawmakers from other opposition parties, including the Democratic Alliance and the Inthaka Freedom Party, voted against the motion, arguing that it would limit the South African role in a future peace process. Ramaphosa stated during his two-day trip to Qatar last week that Pretoria had submitted a request to the International Criminal Court to investigate Israel's military campaign in Gaza, which he claimed amounts to genocide. He further called for a ceasefire and a two-state solution. South Africa also hosted a virtual summit of the BRICS Block of Emerging Economies, 
consisting of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa on Tuesday, with the group calling for a diplomatic solution to the war in Gaza. Thank you, Scott. Business Live is going to start our round of spins with a pro-Palestine narrative. The clear vote of the South African MPs is an impressive testimony to the functioning moral compass of South Africans. From their own history, they know what apartheid means. Now it is the Israeli apartheid regime and its crimes against humanity in Gaza that demand South Africa's full solidarity with the Palestinian cause. Pretoria has to act on the motion as its history of oppression is the reality of occupied Palestine. Thanks, Adam. Times of Israel brings us the pro-Israel narrative. This anti-Israel vote is shameful for a nation that once was one of Israel's most valued African partners. Pretoria has emerged as an ignorant Israel critic despite decades of friendship, claiming that Israel is an apartheid state and has committed genocide against Palestinians. Behind these outrageous allegations lies a geopolitical calculation to strengthen its alliance with developing nations at the expense of its Western ties. If Pretoria follows the paramilitary decision, it will lose its credibility for good. And a nerd narrative on this spin thinks that there's a 50% chance that the ANC will receive more than 50% of the vote in the 2024 South African general election. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. China is closing its mosques in the northern regions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of India, Associated Press, BBC News, Time, and News 18. According to a Human Rights Watch report released on Wednesday, the Chinese government is closing mosques in the Muslim-majority northern Ninja region as well as the Gangsu province as part of an official process known as, quote, consolidation. The PRC is also allegedly removing elements of foreign architecture and mosques so that they look more, quote, Chinese, which the report, citing satellite images, eyewitnesses, and public papers, claims as part of a, quote, a systematic effort to curb the practice of Islam in China. Though HRW didn't provide an estimate on the number of mosques allegedly affected, a professor for the University of Plymouth claims that approximately 13,000 mosques in the country's northwestern Ningxia region have been closed or converted since 2020. HRW's report expands on allegations that China has conducted similar actions in Xinjiang, where the government has been accused of committing crimes against humanity through its treatment of the 11 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities that reside there, allegations Beijing has reportedly denied. Meanwhile, China's foreign ministry has also denied the allegations outlined in Wednesday's report, claiming that the organization is, quote, biased against the PRC, which it says aims to restore mosques and protect religious freedom. The policy of mosque consolidation, which China claims reduces the economic burden on Muslims, is reportedly mentioned in a 2018 directive that allegedly asked officials to control the construction, renovation, and expansion of Islamic venues. Thanks, Adam. Global Times brings us the pro-China narrative. China's critics are manipulating the news to paint a false picture of human rights violations out of what are merely mosque renovations. Chinese-style mosques have always been the tradition in the country and are deeply supported by Muslim communities. 
This is nothing new, however, as foreign media consistently concocts misinformation about what's really happening in China. And Center for Uyghur Studies is going to counter that with an anti-China narrative. China is today the world's only country officially demolishing mosques and interning millions of Muslims in concentration camps. The communist regime's repressive policies in the western provinces are the most extreme embodiment of state-sanctioned Islamophobia. And this expansion of the crackdown on mosques must be viewed in this context. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 33% chance that any current provincial-level administrative divisions of China will formally declare independence from China before the year 2050. And Sometimes I, I think about kind of like tertiary people in these. Like, So there was a guy that designed these new mosques, and obviously people aren't loving it. You know, like <laughs> somewhere, some guy somewhere, you know, like worked really hard, drew up some plans, and, you know, whether it was his intent or not to, to, uh, to insult, uh, it's, I would say that's, that's a big thumbs down critically on his work. I tell you what, they're like, your big chance is here. We're going to have you, uh, you're going to renovate over 30 mosques in the northern region of China. All right. And, and he's like, oh my gosh. I my ship finally, has I'm, come in. It's about time. My ship time. has come yeah. in. I've been working for on these, on these plans and now finally they're taking them seriously. I can feed my family. I can put my kids through college and nope. Everybody hates him. Yeah. Yeah. A Georgia judge refuses to revoke a Trump co-defendant's bond. Here are the facts as agreed upon by UPI, The Guardian, Courthouse News Service, Georgia Recorder, and USA Today. Fulton County, Georgia Superior Judge Scott McAfee on Tuesday rejected Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's request to reject the bond of Harrison Floyd over social media posts he made about witnesses in his case. Floyd, the former director of Black Voices for Trump, was indicted in August by a grand jury that alleged he, former President Donald Trump, and 17 other co-defendants illegally conspired to overturn Democrat Joe Biden's 2020 victory in Georgia and other states in the presidential election. Willis last week filed a motion accusing Floyd of a pattern of intimidation toward co-defendants and witnesses, including Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and co-defendant Jenna Ellis through comments made on podcasts and social media. Floyd's defense team claimed in its response that he didn't violate the conditions of his bond, writing that he was exercising his First Amendment rights and didn't threaten or intimidate anyone. Although he didn't revoke Floyd's bond, McAfee said Floyd had probably violated some parts of the order, so the order should be amended to deal with the nuances of social media and to clarify what behaviors would lead to Floyd's bond being revoked. This decision comes while judges are dealing with the issues of witness intimidation and criticism of co-defendants and court workers in this and other cases surrounding Trump, who is under gag orders in Washington, D.C. and New York. Thank you, Scott. The spins are going to begin with a pro-Trump narrative provided by The Washington Times. This hearing was an attempt to shut down Floyd's free speech, while allowing Fannie Willis to raise her national profile among Democrats by playing her part in the witch hunt against Trump and his current presidential campaign. Now that specific guidelines are in place, Floyd can adhere to them with full transparency. And Alternet brings us the Democratic narrative. This is a serious matter because witness intimidation and public criticism of co-defendants and court officers via social media or otherwise 
can soil the justice system, which should treat everyone equally. Unfortunately, Trump's co-defendants are acting like him. And until everyone faces consequences for their attempts to tarnish the system, this concerning behavior will continue. Canadian super pigs threaten to cross into northern U.S. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Global News, Anchorage Daily News, and CBS. An expanding population of feral super pigs across Canada's Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba provinces are now threatening to cross into northern U.S. states like Minnesota, North Dakota, and Montana. These quote-unquote super pigs are often crossbreeds between Eurasian boars and domestic swine, resulting in bigger and more fertile and durable animals. Pigs which aren't native to North America have inhabited Canada since the 1980s when they were crossbred by farmers. Many of them were let loose when the market collapsed in 2001. They then adapted to the cold weather, tearing up land and spreading disease to hog farms. Female pigs, known as sows, can bear up to 12 piglets per year, meaning even if 65% were killed annually, the population would grow. Hunters have also been able to kill 2-3% per year, and several U.S. states have banned hunting since it makes them more nocturnal and therefore harder to kill. In the U.S., the pigs have caused roughly $2.5 billion in crop damage and even killed a woman in Texas in 2019. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, is using aircraft and drones to track them in the northern border, and Minnesota is expected to release a report in Friday on how to address the issue. University of Saskatchewan professor Ryan Brook and his colleagues have so far identified 62,000 wild pig sightings in Canada. Since the USDA launched its National Feral Swine Management Program in 2014, there have been about 6 million sightings across at least 35 states. Other states have also implemented measures, with Texas in 2017 approving a new pesticide targeting wild pigs, and Arkansas, where over 27,000 feral hogs were killed between January 2020 and February 2022, creating the Feral Hog Eradication Task Force. All right, Adam, Narrative A comes from First Post. Unfortunately, eradication isn't possible, given that these super pigs have been breeding and roaming free for 20 years. The U.S. and Canada must limit their presence by focusing on the root cause of the issue, uncontained reproduction. Rather than slaughtering these animals, there should be an effort to implement birth control measures and, more importantly, recognition that this is a self-inflicted problem that calls attention to the problematic practice of crossbreeding. And we're going to wrap up today's podcast with a Narrative B provided by the Houston Chronicle. It's true that there's no magic solution to completely eradicate wild hogs. But since about half of these feral swine make their way to Texas, authorities should ramp up the poisoning tactic that's shown the potential to be very successful in the state. If landowners can program them to eat from a hog-specific feeder and use non-toxic bait during the weeks, leading up to the lethal bait, they can eventually start killing these pigs effectively. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thanksgiving, Thursday, November 23rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. 
Then for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information, visit our website, Verity.News, or download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Verity.